собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. Much of what we hear about the Russian Orthodox Church focuses on corruption, the church hierarchy's relationship with Putin or other Russian elites, and its fight against liberal values, homosexuality, and other perceived moral ills. But what about belief? Few Russians are religious practitioners, but many still identify themselves as Orthodox. So what is the relationship between belief, identity, and the church's mission at the parish level? I turn to John Burgess for some answers. John Burgess is the James Henry Snowden Professor of Systematic Theology at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's the author of several books on Protestant theology, church life, the place of faith in the modern world, in addition to an interest in Russian Orthodoxy. His new book is Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia, published by Yale University Press. Here's John Burgess. So you're a professor of Calvinist theology over here at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which is literally like three blocks from my house, and you're a Calvinist believer. So what drew you to write about the Russian Orthodox Church? I've been interested in the uh, Soviet Union and now the former Soviet Union for many years. Thirty years ago, I happened to have an unusual opportunity to spend a year as a guest student at a theological seminary in East Berlin, while, of course, East Germany was still communist. And it was during that year that I became so aware of this other reality, part of that Cold War reality that I'd grown up with as a kid, and very aware of the Russian presence. And so I think all of that together made me very curious to learn more about Russia. I was there briefly in 1986 for a two-week visit. And then after the fall of communism in 91, I began to hear that the Orthodox Church was coming back to life. That's something I wanted to investigate. In your experiences with studying the church and learning about it, um, you've devoted a lot of time while you're in Russia to going to Orthodox services and participating in Orthodox religious communities. So talk about your experience as an outsider, you know, as an American, as a, a Protestant, and as a participating scholar and a believer. Sure. And, you know, that was at the beginning a very clear reality that I was an outsider for lots of reasons. I began learning Russian in preparation for the trip. So my first Russian lessons didn't begin until I was 48 years old. And I did an intensive summer program at the University of Pittsburgh. You know, I was the old guy in the class. Most of the uh, other students were 18, 19 years old. And I came to admire how quickly their synapses fire. It was like the tortoise and the, the, the hare. You know, they would leap ahead during the week. But when they were parting on weekends, I was uh, memorizing my 
flashcards on catching up a little bit. So even when we got to Russia the first time in 2004, my Russian was still very limited. And that was just hard day after day to be so aware of being an outsider. But the other reality, as you say, was that I was a Protestant in an Orthodox world. And what that means is that Orthodox tend to regard people like me with a degree of suspicion. I cannot participate in the sacraments of the Orthodox Church. I cannot receive the Eucharist. And I think people wondered at first, why was this professor from America with his family in the liturgy every week? What were they looking for? What were they trying to find out? So it it took many uh, weeks, many months of learning Russian better and of establishing more trusting relations in the Orthodox parish that we attended before that world began to open up. And when it began to open up, I was just amazed. Once people knew that I I wasn't there to judge them, I wasn't there to talk about how Protestantism was superior, I wasn't there to share American prejudices about Russia, but I was there just to learn. I was curious. I wanted to understand how they think, how they put their world together. And people really responded to that. They invited me into their homes. They made contacts with me so that I could attend other parishes or go to monasteries. And over the last 12 years, the doors have just kept opening further and further so that I have this really unusual set of contacts. And and none of them, or really very few of them, are in the church hierarchy. I've, I've never met Patriarch Kirill. I don't really know the people who surround him. But on the ground in parishes and monasteries and convents, I have all these people who have been very helpful in telling me how orthodoxy has come back to life. Yeah, and let's talk about that I, the idea that you present in your book of uh, revitalization of orthodox belief in the orthodox church. So you present the idea of Holy Rus in your book. And what do you mean by this Holy Rus and, and why this harking back to almost a pre-Russian civilization that collapsed in the 13th century? Yeah, well, of course, uh, as a political entity, Holy Rus becomes significant for the Eastern Slavic peoples with the conversion of Prince Vladimir in 988. But then, as you say, that empire collapsed with the uh, invasions of Mongol tribes in the 13th century. Kiev fell, and the successor countries didn't call themselves Rus anymore, but you had then uh, Russia emerging, and eventually Belarus and Ukraine and so on. So in my book, I'm really not trying to connect Russia to the political entity called Holy Rus, but rather the way that Holy Rus functions as a religious ideal for Russians, as a set of hopes about what is best about their country, what is best about their heritage. So in the book, I really do speak as a theologian, not simply as a historian or political scientist. I'm interested 
in the way that religious symbols and narratives function, how they touch people's lives. And here you have this very powerful symbol, Holy Rus, that in some ways is very romanticized. It goes back to this baptism of Vladimir in 988, but it also represents this hope for a world of solidarity, of peace, of a beauty, because orthodoxy in its understanding of Holy Rus thinks of Russia itself as a kind of chosen people that are filled with divine glory, that show forth something of the beauty of the transcendent in their way of life, or or at least that's the, the hope, that's the ideal. And why this, so talk about how you, you perceive a return to this. How, how is it manifesting itself to this, connecting with this holy Ruth? Of course, that's the interesting question. Can such an ideal be realized on the ground? You know, I suppose in, you were to compare, other countries have their ideals, their symbols. Uh, the United States, for some people, it's Christian America, or in an earlier century, Manifest Destiny. For Russians today, I'm arguing it's Holy Rus. But yeah, how much can that really be realized? And I think what happened was that after 1991, with the fall of communism, the Orthodox Church experienced a lot of goodwill. People in Russia weren't necessarily practicing believers, but they again claimed orthodoxy as part of their ancient heritage, as part of their identity, as an institution that they trusted, as an institution that they hoped might represent something they could be proud about. And so the Orthodox Church had this opening to take that ideal of Holy Bruce and begin to preach about that, to invite people into the renewal of worship, where some of that beauty and glory is represented, and to try to win Russians over to not simply a kind of historical cultural identity with orthodoxy, but to enter into that transfigured world that I'm calling Holy Rus by greater participation in church life. Yeah, let's talk a bit about this this seeming contradiction uh, that many people have uh, pointed out, and that is, and you did too in your book, and that is, in Russians' relationship with Russian Orthodoxy, on the one hand, very few attend church services and are, you know, daily or even weekly religious practitioners, but many, as you said, nonetheless identify themselves as Orthodox. So what is the status of belief in Russia as you perceived it and experienced it through interacting with uh, Orthodox believers at the parish level? For more of a, more than a decade, that has been the enigma that I've been trying to unravel. What, what is this that Russians call themselves Orthodox? They have these this, this very powerful and positive response to many Orthodox symbols and narratives. And yet, as you note, actual weekly participation is very low, very limited. So I think the most important part of the book for me has been trying to lay out 
the different ways that people relate to orthodoxy, the different ways in which people can be religious. And for me, this is quite a lesson because as a Protestant theologian, my bias tends to be that to be a Christian believer means you go to church regularly, you read your Bible, you receive the sacraments, you're an active member of a congregation, that kind of participatory confessing Christianity. But I think what Russia has taught me is that people can be religious and can be touched by religion in many different ways. And my Protestant definition of weekly attendance and so on, that applies to a very small percentage of Russians, as I note in the book, maybe two to three percent at best. But there are many other ways that people are touched by this vision of Holy Roos that the Orthodox Church sets forth. So there are people who will never go to an Orthodox worship service, but they want to make pilgrimage to a great monastery like the uh, Holy Trinity St. Sergius Monastery north of Moscow or to Solov Key in Russia's far north. And we can't just be cynical about that. It's not just that they're kind of looking for a practical payoff by going on these pilgrimages, they are genuinely touched by something elusive, by something that they can't yet translate into their everyday lives, but something that makes them feel the greatness, the beauty of their Russian tradition. There are other people who want just to drop into a church occasionally to light candles in front of an icon. Again, they may not attend weekly, but there's something about that act that touches them, that gives them a sense of coming closer to something transcendent, to something better and higher in their lives. There are other people who will participate in an Orthodox ritual like Theophany, which I describe in my book on January 19th when thousands of Russians line up along rivers and lakes and the priests bless the waters and then the participants jump into the waters. And again, you could say, well, maybe they're motivated to do that for all kinds of reasons, maybe just to have a good time, to, to party, to have another excuse to do something crazy in life. But my own observation has been that next to that, there is also this sense Again, that most of them can't articulate that something important is happening here, that they are being touched by something greater than themselves. They long for that, they're enticed by it, and yet, as we've said on the other side, this rarely translates into a fuller, deeper participation in church life, which the Orthodox Church, of course, would like but has really not yet been able to pull off. Yeah, and that I think speaks to something you mentioned about how the Russian Orthodox Church seems to have a, a twin mission, a dual mission. One, of course, is to bring believers into the fold and, and to provide an ethical and, and religious basis to their lives. But the other one is, is to provide a shared sense of Russian identity. And it sounds like from what you just described, there seems to be something to that, that the, the practice of in some of these rituals, whether one is a, you know, a, a weekly practitioner or not, seems to reflect some 
desire to be a part of a larger shared ident- Russian identity. So talk about this uh, uh, mission that you see the church trying to fulfill. Yeah, well, I think that the church itself has been conflicted about this. The church itself has different theologies operative within it, and they're not always harmonized. So one of these theologies says that to be orthodox is to be a regular participant, to be present in the church, to understand its rituals, to participate in its life. But as you say, this other mission has been to lift up the ancient Orthodox roots of Russia and to present that as something that belongs to the DNA of every Russian. And so you get this kind of strange conflict of intentions because on the one side, the church will say, you know, we, pre- we represent 75, 80% of all Russians. Russians, by virtue of being Russian, are somehow orthodox. This is part of their essential identity. Orthodoxy defines us as a nation. And yet on the other side, orthodox priests are quite honest about how few people are actually coming to church and understanding what the rituals are all about. So the ambiguity is there, the conflict is there. I think that in the 90s, the church very much hoped that this kind of broad national identity with orthodoxy would actually be to the benefit of the church's desire to bring people into its fold. That if people could call themselves orthodox, if they could have pride in this ancient past, then the church had an opportunity to bring them into its life, or what I call in the book, in-churching. That hope really has not been fulfilled. Rates of participation have not risen over the last decade. There's uh, no evidence that the national cultural identity with orthodoxy is leading to a deeper religious participation in everyday orthodox parish life. But having said that, I think that, again, it's not insignificant that so many people still have the sense that they are somehow orthodox and that they are touched, they are changed, they are moved by this orthodox vision of Holy Roos, even though they're not going to go further with it by participating in church life. Well, let's talk about some of the things that you you outline in terms of the the community that the church is providing Russians, uh, the types of things people are participating in, and and the general social mission of the church. So first, let's talk about Orthodox religious education because you spend a lot of time talking about this, and you also um, you know participated in this and witnessed it yourself. So. What is the Orthodox Church teaching in terms of religious education, and how are um, the people who are participating responding to it? Right. So this is one area where, with the fall of communism, the Church suddenly had huge new opportunities. Religious education was banned during the communist era, but suddenly after 1991, the Church could establish Sunday schools. It could begin a parochial school system. It's even founded several Orthodox universities. And then in more recent years, the church has even been given the opportunity to 
bring religious education into the public schools. And so it is possible now in many parts of the country for uh, a child, a pupil, to receive instruction in the foundations of Orthodox culture, as it's called. Uh, I think the, the church, again, hoped that initially this would bring more people into active religious participation. As I say, I don't think that has happened, but on the positive side, that kind of education does make more Russians aware of their Orthodox heritage. They do become more aware of simple things like icons, like pilgrimage sites, like monasteries, like the role of a priest. And so in that way, religious education has helped to bring the Orthodox Church out of the shadows, out of the corners, and make it more prominent in everyday social life. Let me ask you a question about orthodoxy in public schools, because, you know, as we know, Russia is a multi-confessional country, right? The, the main religions are Russian Orthodoxy, Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism. And then you have a lot of other smaller, you know, Protestant groups and other groups. So how does the Orthodox Church in, say, introducing education into the public schools, how does it relate to these other confessions? Yeah, great question. Well, this was a very ticklish question, and the Orthodox Church and the Russian state negotiated for a long time. So the end result was not exactly what the Orthodox Church wanted, which was mandatory religious education for all students. Instead, what happened was that the state said schools can offer several different tracks in religious education. The uh, major religions that you mentioned, as well as a track in world religions or a track in ethics. So in principle, in principle, a pupil and his or her parents can choose among five or six different tracks of religious or ethic related education. The uh, other thing that happened was that the state said the coursework would be limited, so it constitutes only about one year of instruction in elementary schools. Now, there are regional programs that offer something more than that, but at a federal level, it's only one year. And the teachers actually have to be licensed by the state, not by the church. And parents always had the option to remove their, their children. They're, it's not mandatory. It's fully elective. So, yes, the church has this opportunity, but it's, it's very limited and much depends regionally. In St. Petersburg, only about 10% of students in the public schools receive Orthodox education in uh, some of the more conservative parts of the country, it could be 80 or 90 percent. Is it is the curriculum, because the curriculum is controlled by the state, is the curriculum more cultural, historical, or is, or is it actual religious instruction? Well, see, that's where we come back to this ambiguous question, what it means to be orthodox. So, no, it is not proselytizing. It is not instruction in the sense of saying, here's what you have to do to be a good Orthodox, you have to go to church, you have to receive the Eucharist, and so on. 
But the church hopes that just by making people more aware of their cultural Orthodox identity, they'll want to come to the church. They'll want to participate more. So I think that's why the church agreed to this. It, it continues to have this hope. It's not been fulfilled yet, but this hope that if people have more education, more knowledge of their cultural identity and orthodoxy, they will gravitate toward the church. Now, the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, is by far the largest non-governmental organization in Russia. So what are the elements of its social ministry? Because some of the things you talk about are drug treatment, alcohol treatment, but what are some of the other things the church provides communities at the local level? So we have to remember that, again, this was an area where the church was forbidden to provide social services during the communist era. And we also have to remember that with the collapse of communism, the new Russian state has struggled to provide adequate social services for the population. What the church has done, it, it can't possibly cover all the needs in the population, but it has attempted to develop model programs that might be copied by other social actors, including the government. So model programs of drug rehabilitation, of alcohol treatment, of work with uh, parents who have autistic children, helping uh, parents who are caring for elderly parents at home because there really is no such thing as retirement centers and retirement homes for elderly people in Russia. And the church has stepped into that breach. It has taken a lead, really a pioneering lead in many of these areas. So there's a women's monastery in Moscow called the Martha and Mary Monastery that had begun that kind of social work in the old, early 20th century before the Bolshevik Revolution. And it's been able to pick up that work again and has amazing, very moving social programs. This is a monastery that is devoted not only to prayer, but to social outreach and has won a reputation throughout Russia. I think as with education, the, the church's hope has been that if people experience the loving care of the Orthodox Church, they will eventually want to come closer to the church and participate more in its life. Let's talk a bit about the relationship between the church and the state, because the, the history of these two institutions has been sometimes in concert, most of the time in tension. Um, the church since Peter the Great until 1917 was subordinated to the church. It was The patriarchy was abolished. Uh, and it was controlled by a, a holy synod. And then, of course, during the communist period, we know that the church was, of course, banned and uh, many of its, um, its, its practitioners, but also priests were repressed. So what is, the, and, and then today we hear a lot about, at least at the, the high levels of the relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the state and the church, the state promoting the church as part of a new kind of Russian patriotism or new Russian identity. So where, in your understanding, where does this relationship lie now? You know, it's a complicated question. And I would say first off that we Americans should be a little bit humble about 
accusing the Russians. Uh, my own church, a Presbyterian church in the USA, if you were to go back in time 50 or 60 years, we were more than glad to have our church leaders meeting with state officials. Uh, we were more than glad to try to influence policy in Washington. Uh, we had flags in our sanctuaries. We thought that church and state worked together for Christian America. And, okay, that has changed. Uh, some conservative people think for the worse. Others for uh, would say it's for the better. I think overall it's for the better, at least given our reality as a multi-religious, multicultural society today. But we should at least understand a situation in which church and state see reason to work together, not just uh, cynically to use each other, but really to share a common vision of renewing a nation. So that's the first thing I would say, just some humility in coming to that question. The second thing I would say is that the reality, as we know in Russia today, uh, the reality is that we have a very authoritarian, centralized government, increasingly so under President Putin. And if you want to get anything done, you have to be on good relations with the government. Now, how far should one go? That's a legitimate question. When does the church begin to sell its soul for the sake of cooperation? But the reality is, if the church wants to conduct religious education, if it wants to conduct social ministries, it has to work closely with the government. The government in Russia, as in the United States, controls things like zoning, licensing, training requirements for educational and social workers. So the, the church up to now has seen greater advantage in working with the state than uh, publicly confronting it. Uh, as I suggest in my book, though, I think the church should be more honest about the price that it pays for doing that. I think that especially at the level of the hierarchy, the tendency is to sit in silence when the state does things that are unjust, that are abusive, that are not respectful of human rights, or when it supports separatists in eastern Ukraine, or when it moves to annex uh, Crimea, the, the church is silent at uh, the hierarchical level. And I think that does pose a legitimate concern about the degree to which the church hierarchy has accommodated itself to uh, President Putin's government. Now let's talk about something else you, you, you mentioned, which is there's a new set of church martyrs, of priests and, and others who were repressed during the Soviet period. And it's really interesting um, that there is, on the one hand, it's not, it's not surprising that after 70 years of being driven underground and, and threats against it, that you have a restoration or recognition of those, of those people who perished as a result. But what is this effort to canonize and create new martyrs say about the church's relationship to its past? And it as a present place of, of memor memorialization. It's been very difficult for Russians since the collapse of communism to know how to come to terms with that past. There's really never been a process of lustration in Russia, in contrast to places like Germany or the Czech Republic or Poland even. 
So a lot of the crimes and abuses of the Soviet past have never been adequately revealed or investigated by historians. Very few people have been brought to court to uh, answer for crimes that they might have committed. I think the, the Russian tendency, maybe some of this is just in the Russian mentality, has been to say, we just need to get on. We need to get on to the new opportunities. We have enough problems in the present. There's uh, no point of obsessing with that sordid past. So very few places have opened up reflection on the crimes of the past, but the church has been one organization that, from one point of view, has tried to remember and commemorate the victims of Soviet oppression, especially those of the 20s and 30s, the time of Stalin's great terror. Uh, you know, historians today estimate that several hundred thousand people in Russia suffered for their faith, and since 1991, nearly 2,000 have been canonized by the Orthodox Church. Their icons have been painted, there are services that commemorate them, there are memorial sites. In my book, I talk about Budova, on uh, the southern outskirts of Moscow, that was a former KGB killing field and now has been turned into a church memorial site. Now, to be sure, that kind of memorialization has focused on Christian martyrs, so it has ignored the many other victims of Stalin's policies, those who suffered because of the famines, those who were persecuted because they were Jews, those who were political enemies of the state. Much of that just doesn't get on the radar screen of the church. But this one way of remembering that the Stalin errors were not just times of growing Soviet strength, not just a time for pride in the accomplishments during World War II, but also a time of deep violation and crime uh, against the Russian people. I think the, the church, through its memorialization efforts, has helped to lift that up. On the negative side, as I say in the book, this allows the church to present itself largely as a victim of the Soviet era. And that just isn't entirely true. That's not nuanced enough. I think in an earlier question, you said the church was banned during the Soviet era. No, it wasn't banned. There was much persecution. It remained a public official institution, but it was so far under the thumb of the government that it really had no independent voice. The, uh, the independent voices had to go underground. And I think it would add to the church's authority today if it would conduct a lustration process of its own, if it would be much more open about the compromises and accommodations that its church leaders made during the Soviet era, especially in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, people, we can understand, I think, with the help of history, that, that people can live in impossible circumstances, and that sometimes, in this case, church leaders had to make decisions that were regrettable. They felt they had to do it so that the church could survive. It's not a matter of judging things that happened 50 years ago. It's a matter of just being open and honest about the real struggles accommodations, tragedies 
of that era, instead of just sort of sweeping it under the carpet. One of my early, in graduate school, one of my, the most memorable books I read was Bielutsen's description of a parish clergy in the 19th century. I think it was published in 1858, just on the cusp of uh, Alexander II's great reforms. And it's a fascinating description of parish life and a lot of corruption, of course, of local parish priests and the general relationship between you know parish priests and their communities. And one of the things, the interesting things that you provide, and it's something that's missing in most of our understandings of the Russian Orthodox Church here in the United States, is what parish life is like, what the relationship between the parish priests and the community. So how do you assess that relationship today between the parish priests and the locals? You know, that's a fascinating question, and you're quite right, all the way through the 19th century and up to the um, the revolution of 1917, much of the parish clergy was inadequately trained. They were focused on careerism. They wanted to make a, a living, but were very disinterested in helping their parishioners in fact, some Russian Orthodox leaders today would say that this contributed to the 1917 revolution, that the church was so corrupt and so had so forgotten its responsibilities to the people that this hollowed out Russia and made it susceptible to the Bolsheviks. Um, in any case, however one understands that historically, it's true that today there's been this amazing revival of parish life. Now, again, in overall numbers, it doesn't draw in all that many Russians, but just statistically, it's amazing. If you think that in 1991, there were about 7,000 parishes, and today there are 18,000 parishes in the Russian Federation. So this tremendous growth and I've been really impressed by the efforts to educate a new generation of young priests who are, I think, generally dedicated to these new initiatives in religious education and social ministry. So every parish now is being encouraged to have a Sunday school and lectures for adults. Every parish is being encouraged to develop social initiatives, the kinds of things that American churches have done for decades that it's just second nature for us to have soup kitchens and clothing programs and homeless programs and so on. All of this is being developed now for the first time in Russia since the fall of communism. The other thing is that many parishes really are striving to become not just centers where people drop in to get married and buried, but where there's a genuine sense of community, of people who know each other, who are caring for each other. And we have the privilege of participating in such a uh, congregation in Moscow. It's a large parish in the center of the city, right across from the Kremlin. People were very drawn to the priest, who's a very loving, charismatic figure, a great preacher. And people were sometimes driving 15, 20 miles on Sunday morning to get to church because they so treasured the sense of community that they found there. They wanted that for their children. 
They wanted that for themselves because uh, modern globalized Russia has uh, all the same problems as the rest of the West, a, a lot of loneliness, a lot of people who don't know uh, who's there to help them when trouble comes. And so Parish Life, I think, in Russia is offering that alternative. And finally, what are the, the opportunities and the challenges the Russian Orthodox Church faces for the future? Well, we've mentioned one thing, trying to figure out this relationship with the state. It's understandable that the church does not want to publicly protest against unjust state actions. But over the long term, my own reading is that the church will lose public authority unless it's more willing to establish an independent voice for itself. Uh, Related to that is that the church, as we've said, has tremendous, tremendous missionary work still to do. It can't simply live off the hope that people who call themselves Orthodox will truly come to know Orthodoxy and participate in its worship. So this missionary dimension, how can the church really make a case that it offers a way of life that assists people, gives them a perspective that they won't find elsewhere in society? Finally, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge before uh, the Orthodox Church, as is increasingly true of churches in the West, is to be honest that it's probably going to be a minority in its society, that it's going to have to learn to live with less power, with less wealth, with less influence than it historically has been used to. I think that's going to be hard for the Russians, but I've seen it be hard for churches in the United States as well. We really have entered a more secularized, pluralistic, global situation, and the principal challenge for many Christians will be to come to terms with that, not to be disheartened, not to be discouraged, but to learn to think creatively within the new realities of their societies. That was John Burgess, the James Henry Snowden Professor of Systematic Theology at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. His new book is Holy Rus, The Rebirth of Orthodoxy in the New Russia, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who cares Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers 
someone who's there Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer Take second best, put me to the test Things on your chest, you need to confess I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith